Dear Lord, we're thankful that you are our hope. You are everything that we have and everything that we can look forward to. Lord, please would you ready our hearts to hear more of you as Chris opens a word. Would you give him your words to say? Would you speak through him and would you make us prepared to change as we need to? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, worship team. What a great song to end on, talking about the flood. Part the waters that confuse me. I don't know that I heard the rest of it. I just kept thinking about that part. Good morning. I met a number of uh, visitors this morning. My name is Chris Richards. I'm one of the pastors here. And I get to bring the word this morning. As many of you know, we teach expositionally through the Bible, and right now we're in the book of Genesis, and we just finished chapter 7. And chapter 7 was Noah getting on the boat, and the rain's coming. And it really is a terrifying scene, as the judgment of God essentially wipes out the earth. And everyone and everything that was on it. So I'll give you just a second to find Genesis chapter 8. And we're going to get through most of Genesis chapter 8 today. We'll end somewhere around verse 19. Uh, but we're going to read the whole thing together. So Genesis, first book of the Bible. You're only a couple of pages into it. Chapter 8. And we're going to read the whole thing here. Verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of, end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the top of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, ah. Noah opened the window. All right, we'll think about that in a minute. But he opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him in the ark. For the waters were still all over the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. 
and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering from the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the ground went out by families from the ark. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that in your word you show us who you are and who we are to be. God, I would just pray that you would take your word this morning and you would transform us, you would teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the first thing, I'm going I'm to get a little scholastic to start with. So those of you who don't like scholastics, uh, don't tune me out. Hang in there. But there's a lot of structure here in, in, this, in this passage. Because in, in Genesis 8.1, this is the hinging point of the entire Noah story. The entire Noah account, this is the passage that hinges it all together. And when you see this kind of structure in Scripture, uh, the other day, the youth, we went backpacking, and we're walking up this hill, and in the middle of nowhere is a granite slab, I hope you fellas remember this, a granite slab with a person's name in it. It's in the middle of the woods. And so, of course, we sat there and went, wow. I wonder how millions and millions of years ago the water started dripping on this granite to make this, this, these words and these dates. And Oh, we didn't do that. It's obvious that because there's structure, there's something sitting right here. Somebody put it there. There's a reason for it to be there. And so your mind immediately goes to, huh, I, I, I wonder, did the guy bring that up on a mule? I mean, it's a huge piece of granite and we're two miles back from the parking lot. That's a long way to... And your mind just starts going... Well, the same thing happens when we run into this kind of structure in 
an account in the Old Testament, we just don't kind of go, oh, whatever, it's, it's just there. It just happens to be there. Noah started writing and magically this structure... No. No, these are here for a reason. And so we're going to take a, a look at some of this structure. First off, we have a recreation event here. When it says... God remembered Noah and he sent a wind over the waters and it dried them out? Does that sound a lot like in Genesis 1 where it says, the earth was formless and void and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters? Okay, it doesn't really sound the same, but that's because they translated the word differently. The word wind in 8.1 and the word spirit in 1, that's the same word. And so what we have here is an account of God recreating the earth. We see when God starts to dry out the land, we see in the Genesis account, we see that God separated the water from the dry land and then all these things started happening on the dry land. Why is that? When we talk through the Genesis account, remember we talked about the the Mesopotamian myths about the gods were scared to go in the ocean because that's where the monsters were, right? And, and we just don't go over there because that's where chaos lives and, and, and the gods stay on the dry land where things can be controlled and all that. And, and it's, a, it's a big deal that God controls the water. God divided the dry land from the water. God's not scared of the water. He sent his spirit over the top of the water. He sent a breeze and dried it up. There's nothing here. Well, the same thing happens here in the flood story. There's also myths when these people came. Remember, Moses is giving the account of Israel's history to the Israelites who just came out of Egypt who have been told there are all these kind of gods that control all these things. Well, there's also an account, a Mesopotamian myth that came before this one about the flood. And the poor gods of of this myth had to sit very humbled and just cried because there was nothing they could do. The water came and rose and, and the gods just kind of sat off to the side and had to wait that's what the israelites were taught in egypt and so in the face of that moses says no 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 god remembered noah and sent a wind over the waters and dried it up we have creation and we have recreation and god is sovereign over both he's re-educating these hebrews And then at the end, God says this. He says, Noah, it's dry. Get off the boat. And all the people get off the boat. And all the animals get off the boat. Very similar to when God created animals. He created them. He created male and female. He created them, it says, so that they could what? Be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth. What's the first thing he tells him when he gets off the ark? He says, be fruitful and fill the earth. And so we have this parallel structure between the Genesis creation account in chapter 1 and the recreation account here. What's the difference though? Because there's a significant difference. In the original 
creation event, at the very end, God said, it is very good. There's no sin. He establishes the garden. He takes his creation. He takes his Adam and Eve and he he puts them in this garden. It's perfect. It's perfect. He created it in perfection. But post-wrath, as we saw in chapter 7 last week, we're now here in chapter 8 and this recreation is not created perfect. What does he say here? Do you see anywhere where it says he said it was real good? Well, you kind of do. You see it different. At the very end of chapter 8 here, it says, and God was pleased with the aroma of faith. See the difference? First, God created perfection and, and it went awry. And eventually judgment came. And now it says, God was pleased. When Noah made this offering, he said he was pleased with the aroma. And he said these things. That aroma came from Noah's faith. God is pleased with faith. And we see that later on in the New Testament that says, our faith is the aroma of life to life for those that are being saved and from death to death for those that are perishing. There you have it again, right there. When we push this structure going forward, you have creation, judgment, recreation, and what's to come. God's going to do it again. A time is going to come. We see it at the very end when, when God says, as long as the earth remains, there'll be seed and harvest and winter and summer and all these things. But notice the first part of that. As long as the world remains, there will be a time when this is over. This is over. Game done. And he's going to recreate again. I saw a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. We know that he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, and we're going to populate that. He's going to recreate once again. And what is it going to follow? It's going to follow the bowls of wrath being opened up on earth. Very similar to what we have here. Was there wrath prior to Genesis 1? No, God created out of nothing. There was nothing there. And he created it perfect. It was very good. And then, wrath, recreation. And then in the very end, you're going to see the same cycle. God is going to open the bowls of wrath again. And we're going to have another recreation. And you'll see that in Revelation. Well, let's look at some more structure. I said that this passage in Genesis 8.1 is the hinge passage of this entire account. And so you see it here. First, God resolves to destroy all of mankind. You see that in 6.11. And then you go through there. He instructs Noah, build the ark. He commands Noah to enter the ark. Now, you see this funny little wedge thing. As you study scripture, this wedgy thing, I can't use the word wedgy from the pulpit, sorry. This, um, <laughs> that was for those teenagers who were, uh, got, that graduated a couple days ago and now have to sit in here with us. That was for you. Okay. You, you see this structure in scripture all the time and you're told, read scripture in context 
Well, this is one of the ways that you find that context. You see these mirror topics as they start repeating themselves, and the entire account comes to fruition when this, I'm going to say it again, when this wedgy thing completes itself, you know that that's the full context of that passage. Okay? So as you study the account of Noah, we know that it starts up there in 6, wherever. Actually, the introduction starts earlier in 6. And the people have done a great job putting in our, our uh, chapters and verses, which kind of give us this feel. Um, but we get to chapter 8, verse 1, and there is no mirror event for God remembered Noah. It's the hinge. And then things start to unwind. It was, waters prevailed for 150 days. God remembered Noah. Sent a wind, and what happened? For 150 days, they continually abated. And then we start backing back out of the story as the earth starts to dry up. Just as Noah was told to build the ark, Noah gets off the ark and builds an altar. Just as God said, I resolve to destroy everything on the earth, at the very end, God says, I resolve to never again destroy everything on the earth. And this story comes to a close. This account comes to a close. So let's step through this passage just slightly. What do we have? So at this point, and this is where it's time to try and get into Noah's shoes for a minute. Noah has now been on the boat for 150 days. We ended last week with the waters prevailed. The last passage in chapter 7 says the waters prevailed for 150 days. Now, as we sit here in our cozy seat with air conditioning and no smells, 150 days doesn't sound like it's that long. But just for a moment, start trying to get yourself into the position of Noah. Remember, he didn't open the window for, well, they started to obey for 150 days, and then he waited 40 days, and then he opened the window. So it's 150, and then they started drying for 150, and then it was 40, and now he's waiting, he's about to open the window. He hasn't seen the light of day in 300 days. So he opens the window and he sends out a raven. Now, this is one of those skeptics problems when it comes to the Bible because the Mesopotamian myth also says that the guy whose name wasn't Noah sent, and I can't pronounce his name, sent a raven out first. But it explains why they sent out a raven because there's all this dead flesh floating around. And a raven is the ultimate bird to send out because he can land on this stuff and, and eat and so that's why you send a raven out first. I'm not sure that's why they sent, why Noah sent a raven out. It doesn't really tell us why he sent the raven out, but a raven wasn't a clean bird. And so in the end, when he was going to do his burnt offering, it wasn't much of a utility after that. So if it didn't quite make it, I think Noah wasn't a dumb guy. So he opens up the window, he sends out the raven, it says it just went back and forth and back and forth, probably landed up on the top and went back out and came back, and this raven was just independent. He just did his thing, he never came back into the ark, he just flew back and forth, back and forth. But then he sent out a dove. And the dove flew out and couldn't do anything. Came back, and he waited some more. Another seven days. 
Seven days? Why don't you just send him out tomorrow? I'd have been throwing a log out there and jumping on the log and swimming around trying to find dry land somewhere. That's just the way I am. I'm done. 300 days is long enough for me to be sitting in this ark. I would be looking for dry land. Honey, if I don't come back, enjoy the new earth. Send a bird out. Nothing. He doesn't have cameras. I can't like... I can't... mm But he waits another seven days. Patience. It's amazing to see Noah's patience. I think that's why God had him build this ark over 120 years. Because this man was going to need some patience here. So seven more days, he sends out another bird. Sends out the dove. And it comes back with an olive leaf. And it says he knew then that there was somewhere there was no water. And there's all of these ancient traditions now that come with the importance of this olive leaf, that there's, there's peace and there's all this meaning to this olive leaf. I don't know, it was a, it was a branch. It was, he brought back a stick, which meant he actually could see the ground, and that was a good thing. And it gave Noah hope. So Noah should have right then busted things open, jumped out, because there's got to be land within flying distance of this dove. He should be finding it. But no, he... Just waits. What is he waiting for? Get out! I get a little frustrated with this part of the story. And so he waits a little bit longer. And then he sends the dove out again. My initial question is, why bother? We got what we needed. He sends out the dove again, and the dove doesn't come back. And so what does he do? He waits a little bit, and then he opens up the ark. Okay, that's not good enough for me. Get off the boat! He just opens up. What is this man waiting for? We've had all the way back, Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. It's kind of like David is a man after God's own heart. And so you trust him. You sit back and you say, okay, Noah, there's a reason you're doing this. And I don't know what it is. But you're not jumping off the boat for some reason. Maybe it's because you're 900 years old and you don't swim well. But you're not getting off the boat for a reason. But finally, he sa- it says this. God told Noah to get off the boat. And Noah got off the boat. What was he waiting for? God had led him there. God had closed the door. God had secured him for the last year in a place that may not have been real pleasant Noah was waiting for God to say, okay, it's time. Get off the boat. Now, put yourself in that place for a second. Because we need, in order to, in order, I think, to get a full mm, of what was going through Noah's mind, you really have to understand we have the entire world zoo on this boat It's dark. And I'm guessing the seas weren't real comfortable. I'm guessing that boat just didn't sit perfectly flat the whole time. In the end, it landed up on mountains. It didn't start on the mountains. That was, he must have wanted to throw himself off that boat a thousand different times. But it says God remembered Noah. Every time this phrase is used in the Bible, it is followed by God taking action. In fact, that's what it means. When it says God remembered, we know that God doesn't forget. Right? 
he's omniscient. Omniscient by definition means you don't forget. So if God really never forgot Noah, what does it mean to remember? Well, there's an idiom here. It's an idiom. It has meaning that we don't just, we don't walk around saying, I remembered my boy, which means I went and picked him up. We don't say that. I say I went and picked him up. If I say I remembered, it's because, ooh, ooh, I forgot him. (laughs) He's been sitting out there waiting for me for two hours. That's not, that's not what we have here. When it says God remembered, it means God took action. Okay? We see in a couple of other passages, God remembered Rachel and he opened her womb and she conceived. God remembered his covenant with Abraham when he heard the Israelites in Egypt and he came and raised up Moses and delivered them. When God remembers, God acts. And so that when we have this pivotal phrase here in 8.1, it says God remembered Noah. What it means is circumstances are about to change. That's what it means. Okay, Because we also have in Revelation where it says... God remembered Babylon. And again, circumstances are about to change. And he pours out a cup of wrath on this city. They went from, we're partying, it's great, to the wrath of God poured out. When you see God remembered, what you need to see there is the circumstances here are about to change by God's divine hand. That's what that passage means. All right, so here's the message. So all of you who zoned out because of structure and scholastics and that, come back. Now we need to put ourselves in Noah's shoes for a minute. Because the first question, when I read this, the first thing that comes to my mind is, why so long? Why so long? Could God not have said, I have a better idea. Here's a really nice rock. I want you and your family to stand on this rock. I'm going to send floodwaters. And I'm going to wipe out the earth. And, and then in 20 minutes, you can come down off the rock. God created the entire universe in six days. Why did it take him a year to recreate it? Before he had to start with nothing. Now at least every... And he's not even doing stars now. He just is recreating this little ball. Why did it take so long? He puts Noah on this boat for a year. Now... What did he... Yeah, you see the slide. I can see this. It's a smirks. Okay? And you know that if Noah was at all human, it didn't take him very many days to get a little frustrated. The T-Rex is doing things he shouldn't. The bacteria are eating holes in the walls of the boat. I mean, there's just things happening, and they're out of his control, and there's... He had to have had some frustration in his heart, and... There must have been a time somewhere around two months into this where he said, you know, God um, destroyed the world with water and I'm sure he's going to destroy me with methane. Something, but he he had to be acutely aware of his own sinfulness. And he knows that the world was destroyed because of sin, because of wickedness, because of violence. And the last time that he slapped that cow for stepping on the rabbit... There's, he just has this in his heart. He's human. He's a man. And he had to be acutely aware of his sin. And here he is sitting in this dark boat. Thinking, oh no. God judged them on the outside with water. Why am I still here? Why am I still in this boat? 
We don't have any record of God saying anything to Noah while he was on the boat. That doesn't mean he didn't, because when the, when the Bible says Noah walked with God, that's not a temporal thing. You don't walk with God this month and not walk with God next month. Walking with, I mean, we go through seasons, but when you walk with God, that's a consistent thing. And so you know that Noah walked with God while he was on the ark also. But a year. It's one thing to plan something. Noah, I want you to build the boat and it's going to be hard. Yep, okay, got it, God. I'm your man. It's one thing to plan things. It's another thing to experience the reality of those plans. It's one thing to be told it's going to be difficult being on this boat, Noah. It's another thing to be sitting on the boat and going, wait a minute. All other people are no longer here. I'm still in the dark. Why so long? We've been told over the last number of weeks that the ark is a type, a foreshadowing, an example of salvation in Christ. That's what we've been told. When people got on the ark, that, that showed us salvation. They were being saved from God's wrath. Now, I'm going to play a couple of games here that some of you are going to write me letters about because um, what I'm about to say is it, I see it in chapter 8. I don't see it said this way in the New Testament. But we know that salvation has three stages to it. Okay? And when we mix up these stages of salvation, it causes the believer a lot of heartache. Stage one of salvation is getting on the boat. It's justification. It's when I put my hope in Christ, and Christ that moment seals me. With the Holy Spirit, I am justified. Right then, I am positionally perfect. I am God's. God takes my sin. God gives me. He imputes upon me Christ's righteousness. So when God looks at me, he sees Christ. I'm perfect. That's stage one. Now note, if we haven't gone through stage one, stage two and stage three, they don't matter. You can play all the games you want if you haven't gone through stage. If you're not on the boat, nothing else really matters, right? Four minutes into not being on the boat, game's over. You have seen the exercise of God's wrath. Justification has to come first. That's getting on the boat. But then there's this process in the believer's life that goes from the time you've been justified all the way through your life as Christ is restoring you to the, into the image of his son, as God is restoring you into the image of Christ. That's called sanctification. It's a process where God is practically working to remove sin from you. He's dividing those things from you. Justification, he positionally forgave you for sin and gave you righteousness. Sanctification is the process of practically removing those things. That is the long process where oftentimes you wonder, am I, am I even saved? These, these sin habits, they keep popping up every now and then. I keep struggling with this. Why, if I'm a mature believer, do I still struggle with this sin?
God sanctify. Why am I in the dark? And I see this as a picture in the ark of that, this time, because we see this all the way through scripture. When God significantly uses a person, what does he do with him first? Think about that and we'll talk about it in a second. The third stage of, of salvation is glorification. There's going to be a time that God's done picking little things. He's going to remove you from the very presence of sin. It's glorification. It's the time we're going to get our... It's, we're in heaven with Christ. Though we see through a mirror darkly now, we're going to see Christ face to face. We will know fully as we are fully known. There's going to be a time when we stand in the presence of Christ and sin is no longer around us. There's no need to sanctify and pull these things out of us because sin is no longer in our presence. That's the next stage. But sanctification, this time in the middle, this time on the boat, let's think of those men that are used in Scripture and women that are used in Scripture significantly. Take Noah. All right, we definitely know Noah had this nice long testing period in the dark with smelly methane floating around his boat. Moses, what happened with Moses? I'm going to go deliver the people? Uh, Not quite yet. Let's do a little sanctification. Off to the backside of the wilderness. Off he goes. Who else? Joseph, one of the most prominent people. He's going to save the entire Israeli nation. He's going to save them all from this famine. If it isn't for him, it's all going to fall apart. God knows that. So God says, you know, we need to do some work here, some sanctification. So where does Joseph go? Straight to the top? Get ready to deliver those people? No. Joseph goes to jail and spends a great deal of time there. Who else? I have a li- I just went through a list of people. I guess I didn't write them down. Um, oh, David. David's another one. This guy's great. David, a man after God's own heart. He's the new king of Israel. He knew it before Saul knew it. He should have just marched in and taken it. He had God's blessing, but what did he do? Years and years and years of running from Saul for his life. Some of the greatest psalms that we have are pen sitting inside of a cave going, Oh, he's coming after me again. God smite those that are... But I trust in you. I trust in you. God's preparing him. Every single one of us that have come to Christ and have gone through justification and we're in this process, this long process of sanctification... Sometimes it feels dark. Sometimes, and I've had this discussion with people where they think, God, God must be punishing me. I am. I'm underneath God's wrath. Because they're sitting inside the boat and it's so bad in there. It's loud. It's stinky. It's moving around. It's dark. You gotta get that picture because it seems like while I'm inside the ark, I might be under the hand of God's judgment right there. Think of different times in your life where where it's just been hard. God's been trying to peel something off of you that you're putting all your hope in and he only wants your hope in him. And as he's peeling you off of that thing, you just look at the pain in your life and say, oh, I must not be God's. This is definitely God punishing me. I know what he's punishing me for. I still remember it. The judgment is outside the ark. That's why justification has to come first. 
Because once you know your Christ, my spirit bears witness with his spirit that I am a child of God. I am on the ark. Judgment is outside the ark. No matter how stinky and how loud and how whatever it gets inside the ark, that's still God saving me. God disciplines those he loves. We see in John 15 too, it says, every branch that is in me, I'm going to prune. Why? Because I'm going to make you more fruitful. I'm going to make you more fruitful. We have, we have account after account after account of God taking men, taking Elijah and putting him in places to just wait and then move. We have Paul. Ten, did you know Paul spent 10 years in Tarsus after he came to Christ? Maybe it was only six, but, you know, six to ten years waiting. You kind of miss that between Acts, what is that, 11, 19 to eleven twenty six something like that. He spent a great deal of time waiting and learning and hearing for the Lord. Sanctification takes time. And it's hard because God is pulling those things from us that are simply, they're, they're idols. They're the things that we're holding on to with all of our might. And the harder we hold on to them, the harder God has to pull to remove it. And it's going to hurt. But it's not judgment. That's outside the boat. And so we can't confuse discipline, pruning, and sanctification for judgment. Don't confuse those two. And we're going to go into a time here in a minute. Oh, no, no. We, we have to have a little extra hope. As I was going through this, I'm, I'm hoping this, this sounds like hope. Because as I go through this, I just, I am elated by hope. Because I'm in the ark. I'm there. Those of you that aren't in the ark, this doesn't pertain to you. Point, I mean, there's no other way to say it. If you haven't gone through justification, sanctification is not an issue. You have to come to Christ first. You must be on the ark. But the hope here is when Christ says, I've started a good work in you, or Paul actually says this, he says, I'm convinced of this, that he who started a good work in you, he who brought you onto the boat, is going to bring you to completion. And the hope in this is here. I'm reading this book. um, Many of you have gone through it in a small group called Disciplines of a Christian, Spiritual Disciplines of a Christian by Don Whitney. And he starts the book off this way. He says, this little boy is is playing his guitar and his mom makes him play every day. And he looks out his window and his friends are out there playing baseball and playing basketball and having such a great time. My boys play the guitar, so I know how this goes. They don't play like that. But it's all the monotony, and the kid just hates it. He just hates it. It's just killing him. And so one night, he goes to bed, and the angel of guitar future comes to him and takes him into this building in Nashville. And there's thousands of people, and he's standing there in the back, and and there's there's a guy up in front. You barely can see him. And he's just majestically playing this guitar. Just majestically. I don't know what you call it when you majestically play a guitar. But it sounds really good and the people are just in awe. And so the angel of guitar future tells him, 
son, that's you. That's you. All of this work that you're doing, all of this time that you're spending walking with God when it seems so hard, that's you. God tells us, I'm going to finish the work. When perfection comes, though I see through a mirror darkly, I'm going to see face to face. I will know as I'm fully known. God is going to complete the work. I am going to be like Christ. There will be one day when I walk hand in hand in streets of gold with God. To wipe away my tear, there's no reason for lights because he himself produces all the light. There's a place in the sanctification process where we know God is going to remember Shane. God is going to remember Dino. God remembers you and the circumstances are going to change. Sanctification is hard because you fight your flesh all the way through it. This whole process of life. But God has not forgotten anyone. God remembers you. His plan, just like his plan to survive, to have the entire little group of people on that ark survive... He's not, these people were never in danger. They didn't know that. They were never in danger. God was going to move the seed of humans to the end of that. God also is going to move us there. So we're going to move into a time of prayer and share now. And These are those things that we really can pray for each other in. What are the, where are we right now? What are these places, what arcs are we in right now waiting What times in life are we in that we can come along with each other and pray for each other that we can, at least we can see the hand of God moving because we know or we can remind each other that, oh, God hasn't forgotten you. God remembers. Let's pray. God, I thank you for hope. I thank you, God, for those that are, those that have been justified that are on the boat. God, I thank you that you have not forgotten us. God, I thank you that you are completing that work in us. God, would you please remind us of yourself? God, for those that aren't on the boat, God, you say the day of salvation is today. God, would you quicken their spirits? God, would you quicken them and have mercy on them and bring them to yourself? If that's you and you don't know Christ, be sure to ask somebody. And they'll tell you how. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.